that rain came out of nowhere, right? Yeah. I mean, just, I, we, <laughs> I had the window open, sitting here just doing editing, getting ready to get our first videos all set up and everything, and then, you know, just all of a sudden, I thought it was wind at first. It was, it was, it was a little bit of a combination of both. But it was so smooth. I was like, when you said that, I was like, I think that's just wind. But then <laughs> it just kept going, and I was like, wait a second. Well, leaves aren't moving, so yeah, it's not just wind. <laughs> yeah, I'll never get used to that. I, it's growing up because you know we lived in California. It doesn't mm -hmm. rain like it does out here, out there at all. Mm -hmm. I always thought that, like in movies and things, when it would just start raining out of nowhere, I would always be like, "That doesn't make any sense. Rain doesn't work like that. You can't do that." But then we moved here, and that's exactly what it does. It really just starts pouring out of nowhere. You'll be looking outside, look back down at whatever it is you're doing, and the next thing you know, you just hear mm -hmm. within five seconds even, just just pouring rain. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. Well, I think the first time for me, yeah, when I was out as a trucker, and all of a sudden, I mean, you know, it, it goes fast here, but then you're as a trucker sitting there driving, and I'm pretty sure... Yeah, it was Texas. Actually, it was Texas I came through. <laughs> and it was just nice and clear. I well, it was cloudy. And then just all of a sudden, wall of rain. Like, mm -hmm. wall of rain. And, uh, yeah, I was, I was like, taken aback by that. Because it literally slapped the windshield. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> what the hell is that? So, yeah. But, you know, so if anybody's hearing the rain in the background, it is not us <laughs> or thunder because yeah. it's supposed oh, it's to be thunderstorming yeah, like all come. day so since it started raining we can hear that at any moment now mm, if we're lucky we just won't get cut off in the middle of it if we're suddenly not here you know why so <laughs> and with that good morning and welcome to the stupid podcast on everything where i'm joey and i'm kiki and we talk about everything and nothing all at the same time so pretty excited about today's show mm -hmm. and actually pretty excited about today it's a beautiful wednesday if you like rain and for us the first rain always means one thing for a first big rain like this <laughs> grilled cheese sandwiches and tomato soup yes. and living in texas we get to do it with texas toast yeah. which is just like the best thing so and i have tomatoes upstairs that i can go ahead and punch out and give us some fresh tomato soup Ooh. so yeah and I do not do t basil tomato soup. I just do tomato soup. I do a Robusto tomato soup because I think basil and tomato soup just makes it taste more like a pasta dish than it does a tomato soup to me in so many ways. Oh, I mean, the way that I like tomato soup, I don't even do it. Like, I make it taste like a pizza, in all honesty, because I had oregano and basil and just a lot of different things. And, and right before I, you know, dish it out to the girls, mm -hmm. I put cheese in it. And they love it like that. I love it like that. But I know it's not traditional. But I also haven't had homemade tomato soup. I always just get the cans of Campbell. Mm -hmm. So Usually I'm, I'm good for that. But today I think because we got a great deal mm -hmm. on those tomatoes that I'm going to go ahead. we make some bread. Okay. Well, we'll see how much time we have. I'm, but I'm definitely down for it. So, But anyway, let's uh, jump into things. And, uh, you know, actually, before we jump into things. You know, I was sitting there and was uh, setting up for our marketing because, you know, for those of you who listen, you know that we've done, you know, we're basically what, like, I think 14 episodes in, 15 episodes. We're somewhere um, around there. Yeah. Uh, 18. Think, yeah. No, it's 18. So we're 18 episodes in and I haven't started marketing yet on our side. I mean, you know, you're probably listening to this because of marketing, but I haven't started marketing on our side because content is king. 
But I went back and listened to our first couple of episodes. We were actually sitting at the desk. When we first started, we were sitting at the desk with a computer between us and the set versus the sound now. And I want to tell you guys, we haven't upped our equipment. We didn't change our equipment. All we did was went over into the guest room bedroom and <laughs> I put my mic inside the pillows with a little cave and we're, we've been doing our podcast laying on the bed. It's much more comfortable. It's just kind of easy going, right? Yeah. It, it makes it a lot more just like casual mm-hmm. instead of feeling like we're performing for a bunch of people. It just feels like we're just hanging out and talking. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, it's just better all around. And I listen to it and I just kind of want the first episodes to not exist except for the content of the first episodes. And for those of you who are just joining us or have only listened to a couple of our podcasts, just so you get an idea, um, I'm a white Gen Xer with a college degree. I've got my degree in marketing and I have several awards under my belt. I've been published in magazines. I've also taught marketing seminars. I was pursuing a tech career mark, a tech marketing career at uh, the largest tech company in the world and decided that I needed to quit that and became a trucker. Uh, about five years ago, and <laughs> I have very, you know, uh, I don't, I don't want to say conservative views, but I have very strong views in what I have. I, I kind of believe I'm a person that believes both sides are wrong, and yeah, that's who I am. And I am 21. Um, I was a high school dropout in senior year, and then got my GED. Uh, I worked for my mom in her daycare from about, you know, 15 on until I was about 18 and a half. And then I have not done a whole lot since, but, you know, mostly just explored hobbies. I kind of stay in touch with things online, but not like with friends or anything. I'm just kind of, I like the homesteading life and staying home and taking care of the girls and things like that more than going out. I still want friends and things, but mm-hmm. I'm just not, I'm not super in touch with people my age. I feel I, I don't, I don't connect with them. So my, my views, I guess are very in the middle because I have, you know, I didn't grow up going to church or anything. I, I don't have, you know, an insider view on any of the the things like that i have the you know minority side of it because i'm black and mm-hmm. then i'm young and then i disagree with a lot of people on a lot of things that are also young so i just feel like i have a, a perspective that people don't expect from me mm-hmm. yeah well you're young black woman with central v- views that believe in you know liberty and freedom it's yeah. it's not typical. It you don't off. want yeah. You don't want everybody <laughs> handing you everything. It's it's a definitely so that's that's where we get along. And it's like the things that I've had in my life, she hasn't. The only thing we really have in common, we joke about, is the fact that that we're the oldest of yeah. all of our siblings. But you've never been homeless. Mm-mm. You've never been shot, Mm-mm. stabbed, set on <laughs> fire, locked in a trunk, dragged behind a motorcycle thrown off a bridge, you know, all the fun stuff that I think everybody should experience at some point in life to have a really fulfilled life. And I'm sure is on most people's bucket lists. No, thank you. (laughs) So, but, you know, the fact is, is that our viewpoints are in the middle. We believe that there's always a good middle ground. 
you know? And so we find it's just, it's an interesting dynamic and it's been an interesting dynamic for us for several years. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So let's go ahead and get into it. Thank you for, again, for coming and joining us. And uh, what do we got to start with this morning? What is our national day? Our national day today. And I'm sorry, culinary master, if I butcher the word over and over again, but it is national bouillabaisse day. You said it right. Okay. <laughs> I have to say it right a million more times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Bouillabaisse, bouillabaisse, bouillabaisse. So, National Bouillabaisse Day on December 14th gives seafood lovers everywhere a reason to celebrate. Mm. The flavorful fish stew hits the spot on cold winter days as well. The French are known for many great recipes. Their food inspires travel f- to France for a taste of authentic dishes. Bouillabaisse tops the list of must-have cuisine while visiting France. The tasty stew originates in the port city of Marseille. Mm-hmm. Okay. It is traditionally made using bony rockfish, saffron, fennel seed, and orange zest, which right off the bat tells me this is an expensive-ass soup because <laughs> saffron is expensive. <laughs> um, and then, okay. However, in the culinary world, strong opinions bounce around about the proper ingredients for an authentic bouillabaisse. Those opinions include the type of fish. Mm-hmm. Typically, cooks use red rascas. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> sea robin or European conger. Mm-hmm. Okay. They also debate the type of wine, red or white. Both topics are hotly debated. They even argue about the soup's origins. Did a Greek goddess create the stew, or does the credit belong to a coastal fisherman who threw the ingredients together from unsold bony rockfish? Perhaps yeah. these spicy debates add a little flavor to the stew as well. Your guess is as good as ours. Regardless, cooks use a variety of fresh fish, fish as their step first step to a delicious bouillabaisse. It is especially important if you can't get to the south of France to order it made for you. Mm-hmm. Well, personally, I'm going to tell you, I don't think that you know a sailor just threw a bunch of to get a bunch of stuff together <laughs> and the first reason for that yeah, is saffron. every recipe i know is is saffron we have saffron here at the house you know and it's so weird too cuz it's such a small little container and mm-hmm. you said it was how much oh that that little container that i have was about $200 that is insanity mm-hmm. yeah but i also don't think you've made anything with it yet that it actually gives me like we have to do like a side by side of uh, something with saffron in it and without so that sure. i can see the flavor difference Okay. Well, I have, but I didn't announce when I was when I put it in there. It was probably just something unique to you. So, yeah, I I I would love to make it, but one of the things that's really hard to score here in, you know, Texas is fresh seafood. Mm-hmm. Um, unless I want to go down to the Gulf. Now, sea robins, yes, sea robins is a small fish. It's a beautiful fish if you actually look it up. Um, it's properly named. It looks like a bird. It's its fins are so out, so wide and they can be absolutely beautiful, and they're great fish to catch. But I could probably make it with like redfish. But you, but the bouillabaisse, yeah, is there's a huge debate because wine is kind of the weird one for me because I learned bouillabaisse as a white wine dish because red wines are just robusto. I mean, they're they're robust. They're a stronger yeah. flavor, and so when you're using an ultra fresh fish and something as delicate in flavor as saffron. Um, you know, and then you're talking about zest and it's like, and then when you get into it, it's, you know, not just lemon zest, it's a very specific kind of lemon zest. Well, this says orange zest. Okay. Well, and that's the thing you can so use lemon zest, you can use orange zest. That's yeah. You so can weird. use, but 
they're all different, right? And and the thing is, is that some, for some people, and I've actually had it in one of my favorite bouillabaisse that I had was somebody who would use salt cured lemons mm-hmm. and they use the zest from the salt cured or salt cured oranges. I'm sorry. And they had used the zest from the salt cured oranges and it was amazing. And, mm. you know, some of the best I've had. And then there's other chefs who, you know, they want to incorporate a shellfish into their bouillabaisse. Um, doesn't really fall into the definition, but I will tell you that when they use the shellfish and they use the shells down to shrimp shells, lobster shells, crab shells, whichever those are going to be, uh, the, the, the broth is just rich in flavor. So I have a hard time thinking that red wine would do anything but cover over all of yeah, that. Yeah. Cause so. isn't, what do you normally drink when you have fish? White wine. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, that's a delicate what I was thinking. white wine, wine, or for some people, depending on the kind of fish that you're having is going to depend between whether or not you're using something on the sweeter side of the wines or a drier side or even a blend. And mm. personally, I like a good blend, like a good, uh, a good blended white Zin, um, Zin is always a good option. Um, but I like sweeter wines anyways. And then, you know, so, but knowing like when I poach fish, like the, uh, when, when I poached the cod and the halibut mm-hmm. and you were like in love with that, oh, that yeah. was, that was white wine. That was orange and lemon zest. Mm. It was dill. Dill is not in bouillabaisse. Um, and you know, but if I had to use like a Merlot or a cab or something that was red, it would, it would just, it would shut out the flavors of it. Then it, I can't see how it would be so important to use fresh fish because you're not going to taste the fish. You're going to lose it because fish is a delicate flavor with the exception of the darker fishes like tuna, salmon, mackerel, oily fishes, you know, um, a white fish, especially it's going to generally be in a delicate flavor, uh, delicate flavor profile. So utilizing something that gets rid of the flavor of it, that's great for people who don't like fish, but then why the hell are you going to have a bouillabaisse in the first place? Mm -hmm. So yeah, no, I, I'm, if we go back out on the road or we have like Amy on the East coast and know she's heading home or something, probably have her stop by a monger and grab it and freeze it up and bring some over. So yeah. We have a 53 foot refrigerator and freezer, so. yeah. but that's awesome. So what else we have today? So today, um, for the morning, we are going to be doing a segment called what the F in history. Mm-hmm. So I have two different things. Um, nice. one of them kind of funny and just like, you know, I, I know that one person in our family is going to absolutely love this. Um, and then the other one is just very interesting. So this first one is about the history of garden gnomes and where <sighs> the heck they came from and why they I hate exist. Them so much. <laughs> I've been forced into having to decide whether I like them or hate them. And yeah, no, they're okay. weird. <laughs> I don't like the old ones because mm-hmm. like looking into all this obviously i had to see all of the all of the pictures as i'm reading yeah through. i chose not to i was like no you, you can do this but this <laughs> is it is very interesting the <laughs> we'll just we'll get right into it go right ahead so the meaning of garden gnomes um it's not completely clear um paracelsus named elemental earth beings pygmy or nomi to possibly from the Greek word, uh, I'm going to say this is so wrong, Junomos, okay, meaning earth dweller. It is likely that 
uh, nomos was derived from a similar sounding Greek word, gnosis, meaning knowledge. So the earliest appearance of the garden gnome Mm -hmm. was in ancient Rome. Their garden forerunners were statues that represented the Roman gods. So that makes sense. The most common among among them, though, (laughs) was the god Priapus, a minor fertility deity who originally came from Greek mythology. He was a protector of livestock, planting, and gardening, which was symbolized by the depiction the depiction of his permanent erection. <laughs> so that that was a thing that they did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, at least I don't see that in front yards. Exactly. <laughs> so, and then uh, in the Renaissance era, the grotesque potential of those statues was expanded following the general spirit of the age. Swiss alchemist Paracelsus was the first one who described them as creatures with magical power. According to him, gnomes were one of the four elementals or nature spirits belonging to the earth. So that's an interesting belief. Um, They would come out at night to help plants grow. During this period, gnomes were called grotesques and thus were made to be ugly petite hunchbacks painted in bright colors and usually named by the Italian word gobi. So that's a very flip <laughs> of what we, you know, kind of expect because mm-hmm. they were ugly. They mm-hmm. were just really, really weird looking. I still think they're and, ugly. Oh, yeah. Garden gnomes became widely popular as home ornaments by the beginning of the 18th century, but mostly for wealthy families only, which is basically how we still see them kind of depicted in, you know, movies and TV today. Mm-hmm. Um, and the popularity of gnomes persisted thanks to folklore, myths and stories from around the world such as German fairy tales where gnomes and dwarves were present largely as little creatures with mythical power helping humans in farming. So generally what they were representing stayed the same from the moment that they were, we, you know, the earliest time that we can record them existing around us. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> this is where I think this is hilarious. It is believed that the very first contemporary looking garden gnome with the iconic red hat was made in Germany by sculptor Philip Gabriel or no. That's wrong. Philip Griebel. Sorry. (laughs) Soon, the fashion had spread across Europe from England to Poland, and Griebel concentrated his entire manufacturing around producing garden gnomes. (laughs) So, but I want to keep him in mind for a second, because the reason that I wanted to talk about this is because of what I saw, and it was, it is literally, I don't know if it's a rumor or if it's true, but it is said that this guy in particular who invented the modern day garden gnome mm-hmm. did so because he thought they would attract real gnomes for tea so that he could have tea with them. So I don't know if he was a lonely man or if he just liked the idea of sitting down with a bunch of little men. Well, what are you growing in your garden there, buddy? <laughs> yeah. So, so that's <sighs> that. Um, and then, so for our modern day gnomes mm-hmm. the beginning of the modern era in, in europe brought troubling and uncertain times which col- culminated with world war one and two their consequences changed the course of modern history as well as leisure time habits unsurprisingly the popularity of garden gnomes was in decline during this period however thanks to popular culture garden gnomes have returned to homes and gardens in europe once again in 1937 walt disney productions released snow white and the seven dwarves and as an as an animated musical fantasy movie, decades later in 1989, the movie was recognized for its cultural and historical significance, thus being preserved in the National Film Registry. And basically, the Seven Dwarves made the way that we see gnomes the most popular way for everybody to want them. 
So it's Snow uh, White's I'm never going to watch that, <laughs> that we thing have again. I'm never going to think about it because I never think about, I've never thought about the dwarves as yeah, gnomes. Me either. But uh. then the moment that it was pointed out, I was like, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. Hmm. That's exactly what they look like. They are a bunch Great. of gnomes. Great. Uh, <laughs> that ruins it for me. And, and it's just because everywhere in my life, there's always been people who like gnomes and gnomes and everything printed about gnomes today is just a walking dad joke and bad dad <laughs> jokes, right? There's no place like gnome. Oh, I'm looking for my gnomies, you know, and it's like, oh, God, please stop. It was it was funny once. And then it's just, yeah, you see, you're laughing, but it does. I, and you know me. I mean, I, I'm an opinionated person, but like for the most part, I'm like, hey, whatever style you like, whatever thing you like. But like when Keisha comes home with more and, and more she brings things. more gnomes or she sends me pictures of gnomes that she got while she's out on the road. I'm like, yeah, I better never see it. <laughs> I better never see it. I don't want to see a mug. I opened when I opened the cabinet one time. She had her uh, hanging with my gnomies mug, mm-hmm. right? And I looked at that. I was like, I don't want to see this. I literally don't want to see this. And it disappeared. <laughs> I just because it's just they've been. I've been over inundated with people. And then out here, like you know, we have Burks, and we go to Burks, and every single time we go to Burks, doesn't matter what time of year, doesn't matter when, it just. There's always like four or five different gnome things. And all I can think is I hope Keisha doesn't see it. <laughs> I hope she doesn't because she's going to bring it home and act like it's this new thing. I don't want them in the front yard. I don't want them in the backyard. I don't want them anywhere. I just don't like them. See, I don't like the only gnomes that I like are the ones that don't have faces. They have the hat over them to their mm-hmm. nose and then just like a big old beard. Those ones are cute because I feel like it's but I also look at it. I don't know. It's just it. It's just an adorable little character to me, mm. and it doesn't really. It's not really a gnome. It, it's just you know, a red hat covering most of its head, and this big old nose, and then a beard, and it's just a short little stubby thing. But that's it. Every other kind, if it has a face, if it's sitting like a yard ornament or anything, I don't like those ones. Mm. <laughs> if they, because I've seen like at Hobby Lobby, they have them, and they have like super long legs for them to sit. Mm-hmm. on things i don't like that either it's really creepy and weird <laughs> but you know just i i don't know i just yeah. like them when they're just small and adorable and not really a gnome nope nope <laughs> put one in the backyard i will punt it i, I know because i like fairy things mm-hmm. i like fairy gardens and that's and fine and those are fine i have look frogs cats birds rabbits statue little statues and all of those i have never been any i've been like okay yeah go ahead do what you want to do do what mm-hmm. you want to do and i'm then it's always the caveat do what you want to do as long as it's not a gnome <laughs> i want nothing to do with it now and the sad thing is now every time i look at him i'm gonna be like does that one have an erection then it's not true to form <laughs> it's like great so that's just just one more thing to make me uncomfortable about those little buggers <laughs> All right. What what next? Okay, so this one, this is the one that I found really entertaining and interesting to read about. Mm-hmm. Um, the general question that, you know, we have to look at history in order to figure out is when did girls start wearing pink and boys start wearing blue? When did it become a thing? So I was very curious because I remember being told all the time that, oh, you know, boys used to wear skirts and dresses and wear pink mm-hmm. and things like that. And it's it's true. It's not just, a, you know, a little little folklore tale that, you know, kids run around telling, you know, other kids when they're in school. It's, yep. it's actually true. They were fancy boys. Yeah. 
But it was here. We'll get into it because it really entertained me. Um, So, little Franklin Delano Roosevelt sits primarily on a stool. His white skirt spreads smoothly over his lap. His hands clasping in a hat trimmed with a marabou feather. Shoulder-length hair and patent leather party shoes complete the ensemble. We find the look really weird and unsettling today, but it was literally exactly how people used to dress. Mm-hmm. So this was him at age two and a half because boys at that time wore dresses until they were about six or seven, which was also the time of their first haircut. So his outfit was actually considered gender neutral, which blew my mind. But nowadays people just have to know the gender of their baby or mm-hmm. young child at their first glance and you know, then they immediately put them in things like, you know, a pink headband for, you know, the head of their bald infant girl because you have to know that their child is a girl. Mm-hmm. And so why did we go from everybody from the ages of, you know, infant born all the way up until five or six being in gender neutral clothes to boys wearing blue and girls wearing pink. So it's a very, a very interesting process. And it makes sense when you go through talking about it. It's also kind of bothers me because I don't like that. We, you know, veered from the path that we were on. So it starts off where, yeah, we were always, kids were wearing gender neutral clothing. Nobody defined Mm -hmm. their kid as a boy or a girl until, you know, literally six or seven for centuries that's how it was Mm -hmm. what was once a matter of practicality you dress your baby in white dresses and diapers white cotton can be bleached became a matter of oh my god if i dress my baby in the wrong thing they'll grow up perverted which was a thing that people actually believed which also really weird Mm -hmm. (laughs) i didn't think that people believed that their clothing changed how their kid would grow it's just weird oh no there was a belief system like you couldn't have like you know we put kids in little cute pajamas that are Mm -hmm. like look like raccoons or bunnies and things like that you couldn't do that at one point in history because that was like you invoking demon spirits into your child that's so weird yeah oh yes (laughs) so the march towards gender specific clothes was neither linear or rapid um pink and blue arrived along with other pastels as colors for babies in the mid-19th century. Mm-hmm. So fairly new. Mm-hmm. Yet the two colors were not promoted as gender signifiers until just before World War One, And even then, it took time for popular culture to sort, to sort things out. So, for example, a June 1918 article from the trade publication Earnshaw's Infants Department mm-hmm. said, quote, the generally accepted rule is pink for the boys and blue for the girls. The reason is that pink being a more decided and stronger color is more suitable for the boy, while blue, which is a more delicate and dainty color, is prettier for the girl. End quote. Other Seems sources backwards to you. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah the look on your face backwards. like wait, that's what? And I I, I get it cuz like you know, pink versus blue, but okay. And then um other sources had said that blue was flattering for blondes, pink for brunettes, or blue was for blue-eyed babies and pink was for brown-eyed babies. So mm-hmm. s- for the most part, pink and blue were never gender-specific. It was more about complementing some a feature on, the, on your baby. Mm-hmm. So then in 1927, Time magazine printed a chart showing sex-appropriate colors for girls and boys according to leading U.S. stores. In Boston, Filene's told parents to dress boys in pink. So did Best and Company in New York City, Howes in Cleveland, and Marshall Field in Chicago. Today's color 
uh, today's color dictate wasn't established until the 1940s as a result of Americans' preferences as interpreted by manufacturers and retailers, and it 100% could have gone the other way. So the baby boomers were raised in gender-specific clothing. Boys dressed like their fathers, girls like their mothers. Girls had to wear dresses to school, though unadorned styles and tomboy play clothes were also acceptable, but uh, not really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then when, so this is where things started to really change. When the women's liberation movement arrived in the mid-1960s with this anti-feminine, anti-fashion message, the unisex look became the rage, but completely reversed from the time of young Franklin D. Roosevelt. Now young girls were dressing in masculine or at least unfeminine styles devoid of gender hints. So, and, and then also uh, in, 19, in the 1970s, the Sears Roebuck catalog pictured no pink toddler clothing for two years because of this. Wow. So, <laughs> um, basically, feminists oh, decided... Catalog. <laughs> so basically, feminists decided, I don't want my daughter to grow up being, you know judged based on her gender Mm -hmm. so we're going to just make her look like a guy and deal with it and be in gender neutral stuff but without being gender neutral so while they were trying to be feminists in that matter they were also kind of being Mm anti-feminist because instead of going and being hey i can be a woman and feminine i can be a woman be feminine and you know have just as much you know worth as a man they were going hey you have to be a man to be Mm -hmm. worth as much of a man (laughs) that's just it's wrong it's not right that's literally the exact opposite so that's crazy yeah so then gender neutral clothing remained uh popular until about 1985 um so all of a sudden it just basically wasn't just like a blue overall it was a blue overall with a teddy bear holding a football kind Mm -hmm. of thing they really were trying to separate boys and girls disposable diapers were pink and blue and just everything like that like everything changed and everything was pink or blue so literally in my generation is when pink and blue really took hold yeah okay and so so i don't uh, feel bad for the pictures of me when i was a little little kid wearing a pink sweater playing with my sister's cooking set um in in the christmas pictures man i just de-traumatized myself (laughs) (laughs) so then but the the biggest reason which makes sense but also is still stupid Hmm. (laughs) was that prenatal testing became a thing expectant parents learned the sex of their unborn baby and Mm -hmm. then wanted to go shopping for girl or boy merchandise Mm. so the more that you individualize the clothing the more you could sell it. Right. So the pink fad spread from sleepers and crib sheets to big ticket items such as strollers, car seats, and riding toys. Affluent parents could conceivably decorate for baby number one, a girl, and start all over when the next child was a boy. So it was a money-making ploy Absolutely. the entire time. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> when you, you talk about who was who was there and who was the person, you know, who was the company, you know, who were the companies and stuff. Mm-hmm. I hear that's what I hear is, and I'm you're talking about the companies, and I'm going, no, it's the marketing team behind the companies, 100. percent Well, yeah, yeah, because like now, think about this: you could have as specific a kind of room for your baby, no matter what that you wanted. If your baby wanted pink and you wanted, you said, hey, I want my child to be surrounded by pink unicorn teddy bears, right? Mm -hmm. Just that's, that's what I want. You could find an entire ensemble for that because niche marketing is so much more profitable 
than generalized marketing, right? Because you can go and buy a white sheet for a white sheet, right? You can go mm -hmm. buy a white sheet, you spend a few dollars. But you go buy a pink sheet or a blue sheet, it's going to cost you a dollar more. Mm -hmm. Oh, you want this one and you want it to have Winnie the Pooh on it? Okay, but you don't want a regular Winnie the Pooh. You want vintage Winnie the Pooh? Okay, you're going to spend more on it for this. And the more you can specify, the more you can charge for something that's still going to take the same production time that it's mm -hmm. going to be with the difference, you know, being a print plate, which, you know, adds a couple of cents of cost onto it but it allows you to have that level of diversity. I've had clients where we did those exact things, where we had personalized things, so much so that we knew the more personalized that you could make something, and I mean, now even Coke does it, right? Snickers is doing it. They put named candy bars and named sodas out, because it doesn't really cost them anything extra to do that. But man, when, when you see, if, if you were to see, well, I, hard one, but if you were to see a, key, a Coke that said Kiki on it, you don't like Coke. But tell me you wouldn't, in half a heartbeat, grab that Coke if it said Kiki on it. I would, because I didn't see anything else with my name on it. Yeah, and, and it's that's that's the same thing. The more personalized you can make it, the more of a premium you can charge. The more of a premium you can charge, the larger your margins, and that's basic marketing. So, so that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And it's weird for things like that because it makes sense when you say it. Mm -hmm. But you don't just think about things like that on a day-to-day -day basis. Like, sure. I just think it's so it's so interesting, especially because, like, after, you know, after the 80s, after that big, huge, you know, rush of pink and blue, mm -hmm. then we it, it only got worse. But it, it kind of, like, changed for a little bit because, like, the 90s, I don't feel like we're very boy girl it was very streetwear and streetwear was very baggy and very gender neutral mm -hmm. really but then the 2000s came around and my god if you were a girl that didn't have pink and flowers and like hot pink mm -hmm. and flowers and all these things decorating your room you weren't a girl and if you weren't a guy and listening to rock music and having blacks and blues all over your room and it just was it was there was such an expectance of specific gender roles especially when it came to like media and everything like you Absolutely. watch any early 2000s tv show or movie or anything like that the whole opening scene depending on if the main character is a boy or a girl mm -hmm. is half the time showing off their room and they're dancing to some kind of music or getting ready for school and you're showing off all the things that they have and then everybody growing up watching these things oh i have to have that i have to want that i and then they put them out and so it just it well, makes we had sense it in the 80s too we had look it's like we had Teen Beat Magazine, and Teen Beat Magazine was like everything about everything and what you were wearing. Mm -hmm. You know, you're, it, it didn't matter what you were in. There was that push, right? My skater friends. My my first skateboard was a was this, well, I wanted to say what it, it was something better, but it wasn't. I had this really crappy, generic Nash skateboard, right? It was mm -hmm. junk. It was like the, the everything on it was just junk. And it was like, and as soon as I could, man, I got a Pal Peralta rip. I got the, the gold wings. Uh, I, I mean, I mean, I had my T-bolts, my gold wings. I had my bearings. I Everything in that thing, um, down to my risers, <sighs> everything in that, in that skateboard was like, oh my gosh, it was all, you got to have this and you got to have that. And that's because mm -hmm. marketers, you know, push and that's what they want to push because they want to make it more and more specific and Oh man, you're this girl and you're, you know, you're in this era and you've got to listen to this music, wear these kinds of clothes and you've got to, it, it, it hasn't, since marketers realized it was such a market cap, right? Since the ability to customize things while still mass producing, um, on the logistics side mm -hmm. made sense. It, it 
took hold in such a big way down to the, we've had the discussion in the past about how the, the promise rings came yeah. about, you know, it's, you, you find that niche and, and most of the clients that, that I had, we went into marketing. It was always about niche marketing because you were a lot, you were able to grab an, a more specific base, a more targeted focus, and you were able to charge a premium for it. So your margins were beautiful. And that's, you know, now that's everywhere. I mean, like I'm, I want to find out the marketers who are behind these gender reveal things yeah. and all these different things that are now all gender reveal. <sighs> Number one, I, I, I hate most marketers having been a marketer. I can say that we're, we're horrible, evil people, but we do our jobs. We do our jobs well. Because, you know, if it weren't for marketers, Kraft Macaroni and Cheese wouldn't be number one. If it weren't for, you know, if it weren't for marketers, the world would be in a different place and people would be, have more freedom and that would just be disgusting. <laughs> well, we could definitely <laughs> talk more about that yeah. in our afternoon. No, no, we'll, we will. I'll, I'll cover that. I have a couple of, of stories I can definitely tell. And, uh, yeah, hopefully you'll join us this afternoon. Mm-hmm. And with that said, we're excited and hopefully you enjoyed this. Please uh, make sure to share us. We really want to get the word out about what we're doing. And if there's anything you'd like us to talk about or cover, or if you have any feedback, follow us on any of our social media. Our link tree is, is here and available. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again. So until then, I'm Joey. And I'm Kiki. And remember, that that doesn't kill you is probably on a now break. Peace out with your peace out. Bye.